what you find is that a lot of the curriculum in social work school has just become all about race consciousness and that everything should be about your cultural awareness when you walk into that apartment in that public housing project. It shouldn't be about, is this child in danger or not? They don't want to be thought of as part of this systemically racist agency. And so they would rather leave that child in a dangerous situation at all costs, just based on this kind of training that they've received. Is the foster care system racist? My guest today has argued that race-based policies in the foster care system have led to significantly worse outcomes for black children, leading her to argue that yes, the foster care system is systemically racist. Naomi Schaefer-Riley is a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, as well as a senior fellow at the Independent Women's Forum. She has also written for the New York Post and the Wall Street Journal, and is the author of seven books, including No Way to Treat a Child, How the Foster Care System, Family Courts, and Racial Activists Are Wrecking Young Lives. Naomi is also married to one of our past guests, Jason Riley. Naomi, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. So you've made the bold assertion that the foster care system is racist specifically against black children, or at the very least, it systematically disadvantages black kids. So what data is there to support that claim? So the first thing you need to understand is how we measure child maltreatment in this country. So these are kids who have been either abused physically or sexually, or they have been neglected, uh, which can mean that they haven't been given proper medical care, they're not being fed or clothed or housed uh, in a way that most people would find reasonably acceptable. Um, when you look at the statistics, what we find in this country is that unfortunately black children are suffering maltreatment at a rate that is twice as high as the national average, and they're actually three times as likely to die from maltreatment as white children in this country. Um, those are some very sad and difficult facts for people to come to terms with. Uh, one of the things that is driving that, unfortunately, is family structure in this country. A child who's living with uh, a mother and a non-relative male often a mother's boyfriend, is at much greater risk than a child who's living in a family with two married parents. Actually, they're 11 times as likely to be abused. And unfortunately, black children are much more likely to be living in that kind of family structure than white children are in this country. And that accounts for a lot of, I think, uh, the disparities in child maltreatment. So then what happens is, you know, you have these activists who are looking at the system and they're saying, oh no, we are investigating uh, claims of abuse and neglect in black families at a higher rate than in white families. We are placing black children into the foster care system at a higher rate than we're placing white children. The system must be racist. We must actually try to keep black children out of the system as much as possible. In fact, it is our duty and the child welfare system to protect the most vulnerable children. And when you look at those numbers and you realize how black children are suffering, it is incumbent upon us to intervene in these cases. So I saw a previous interview you did with Ali Beth Stuckey, and you talked about how black children had higher rates of injury after there had been a CPS intervention. So, so presumably after they're already on the radar of CPS, the interventions are smaller or less effective or uh, non-existent. Um, why is that? What, what led to that situation? Well, that's actually true of a lot of children in this country, unfortunately. Um, people have this, uh, I think, misconception about the child welfare system that 
we don't understand where the neglect and the abuse is happening. It's all happening behind closed doors. We have no idea who these children are. In fact, what we see in state after state and child welfare agencies are state-run agencies generally. Um, what we see is that we know which children are in danger. We are repeatedly finding out that these children are abused and neglected. We are investigating and then we are making the determination to leave these children in dangerous situations. That's happening with, the, with black children and it's happening with white children. Unfortunately, I think what's happening in many of these agencies is that there is extra pressure now to leave black children in these homes because these agencies and, co and these workers in these agencies do not wanna be accused of being racist. So they are giving uh, these children in some sense, more of a chance to stay in these dangerous situations. Um, you, as I as I mentioned in that interview, and I've mentioned elsewhere, um, there was, for instance, a judge in New Orleans who I interviewed and who basically made it her job to not ever approve black children going into foster care. And when I interviewed her, she said to me, "Why don't I see more Vietnamese people in my courtroom?" Um, as if that's really a, a relevant question to ask. The question is. There are children in your courtroom now. Are they in danger or not? And what are you doing to protect them? Um, but unfortunately, the racial kind of you know uh, narrative in this country that has taken over in every conversation from education to policing is now infecting our child welfare system as well. Now, in your PragerU video, you mentioned that it is explicitly illegal to take a child's race into account when it comes to placement, but that that rule is frequently flouted. Have there been lawsuits um, in response to those violations? How is the court ruled in those cases? Sure, there was actually a law passed in the 1990s called the Multi-Ethnic Placement Act, which says that when a child is being placed for foster care or adoption out of the foster care system, that the court cannot discriminate based on race or ethnicity. Um, that is that a white family could adopt a black child, a black family could adopt a white child. The question is, who is going to provide that child with a safe, loving, and permanent home. And that was actually bipartisan legislation. Democrats and Republicans came together to create that legislation because back then there was universal agreement that the most important thing was a child's best interest. Unfortunately, now we have lost that consensus. And what's happening in increasing cases is you have caseworkers behind the scenes who are working to ensure that race matching is taking place, that they are taking into consideration when they place a child, whether that child's skin color matches that of the foster or adoptive parents. Uh, you have judges who are taking that into consideration. Uh, sometimes it's being mentioned openly in court and sometimes it's being done behind the scenes. Unfortunately, there really haven't been lawsuits about this. And one of the reasons for that is I think a lot of foster and adoptive parents are really unaware of this rule. They're unaware of their rights to speak up in court about it. Uh, a lot of the lawyers who are involved in family law don't really understand what the federal regulations are. Many of the caseworkers don't even understand what the regulations are. Um, and the last thing is a lot of foster parents feel very like they're kind of hampered in speaking up because if they kind of raise too many objections, uh, then they face often retaliation and the child is taken away from them anyway. Um, so all those things are sort of preventing us from enforcing this very sensible regulation. Now, you mentioned that this judge specifically was hesitant to pull children out of uh, their homes based on race. So that doesn't necessarily map onto that law that says that you can't race match families. Is there any law preventing the judge from doing what he or she was doing? Well, we have equal, equal protection in this country. And yeah. the idea is that the, the same laws 
uh, that we are applying about whether a child is in danger should be applied across the board, whether that child is white or black or Asian or Hispanic. Uh, and we should not be asking ourselves, the first question we should not be asking ourselves when we're determining whether a child is in danger is what is the skin color of that child? So presumably these uh, activists are trying to act in the best interest of the children. And I'm assuming we have some sort of research on what the best uh, environment for children is. Do we know if there is any benefit to placing a child with a same race parent or is what do we know about, you know, the best outcomes for kids in terms of factors in placement? Sure. Well, I would say if you wanted to give the benefit of the doubt to the activists, what they are always saying is that they are acting in the best interest of families, not children. Um, and so what happens is when in determining whether to remove a child from a home where there has been an accusation of abuse or neglect, they're always asking what is in the best interest of the whole family, which I think is often the wrong question to ask. I mean, obviously, in general, we want children to remain with their families. Who doesn't want that? Um, but the situations we're talking about here are akin to, you know, if you have a, a wife accusing a husband of, you know, of, of some kind of abuse and the police show up and the police, you know, the first question they ask is, how can we get you guys back together? That is the, the kind of um, family preservation, family reunification ideology that governs child welfare is always asking, how can we get these children back together with the parents who have already mistreated them? Um, to answer your question about research on mixed race adoption, I think this is a really interesting question that most people really have a great misconception about. Um, if you look at the longitudinal studies on this, what you find is that, of course, adoption is always going to be a traumatic event because something bad has to have precipitated this uh, uh, event that a child is not being able to live with the parents who gave birth to them and who have reared them up until that point. But if you, for instance, compare black children who are adopted by white families and black children who are adopted by black families, the outcomes are no different. They're no different on educational attainment. They're, they're no different on everything from self-esteem to income uh, to likelihood of, of criminal activity. They are all the same. And what we have to understand for children, and I think we know this even better than we did in the 1990s, based on all the research we have about brain development, is that the most important thing for a child is being in a safe, stable, loving, permanent environment. Those are the things that determine whether a child is going to develop properly. It is not whether their skin color matches the skin color of the adults that they're living with. Now, we talk a lot about the role of critical social justice theories, especially in education. Um, sometimes you'll hear about it in healthcare. And you've talked about how some of these theories have gained ground within the social workspace. When and how did this race consciousness go mainstream in social work? Well, I mean, I think social work education has probably always had this sort of progressive strain in it. Um, I think there are kind of two problems in the way we train our child welfare workers. The first problem is that they're undertrained. Um, you have people who are often, uh, you know, not very well qualified going into this work. Um, we're not informing them of what the difficulties of this work is, um, how dangerous it can be. I mean, you're basically asking, you know, some 22-year-old to go into a public housing project, knock on a door. She doesn't know who's going to be on the other side. Um, and, and start asking some very painful and difficult questions of the people in that home, while at the same time trying to gather information about 
whether that child has been abused or neglected, whether the parents there are telling you the truth, who else is in the home. Um, it's, it's really much more akin to police work in a lot of ways, but we don't require the same kind of, I think, training. Um, and we don't have the same kind of sense that this is a vital um, kind of first responder sort of work that I think we should have when it comes to child welfare. Um, in terms of the, the racial uh, aspect of child welfare work, um, what you find is that a lot of the curriculum in social work school has just become all about race consciousness and ensuring that uh, we, we don't, um, you know, have, uh, you know, too high standards, essentially, for how Black families treat their children, that everything should be about your cultural awareness when you walk into that apartment in that public housing project. It shouldn't be about, is this child in danger or not? Um, and I think that really has spread. And 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 the sense of guilt too, you know, when a, when a worker actually does confront this reality that a black child is in danger, the extraordinary amount of guilt and pressure on that, on that person when they have to make the decision to actually remove that child. I mean, they don't wanna be thought of as part of this systemically racist, uh, you know, agency. Um, and so they would rather leave that child in a danger situation at all costs, just based on this kind of training that they've received. Now, you've also asserted that some states are actively trying to screen out religious parents as potential foster or adoptive placements. What evidence is there for that claim? So there are a couple of different things to understand here. I mean, the first is obviously we have had uh, court cases recently. There was a case before the Supreme Court last year. Uh, the city of Philadelphia announced that it was no longer going to work with Catholic charities uh, to place children in foster care because Catholic charities was specifically not placing kids um, in same with same-sex couples. Um, now, there was never in that instance, for instance, a, a case where a same-sex couple actually was turned down or that they were not, uh, that a foster child was not placed with them. Um, but, but Catholic Charities, at any rate, was kind of run out of the business. And uh, the, there, was a, there was a lawsuit with the Beckett Fund. And the Supreme Court said, you know, you, you can't do this. Catholic Charities are providing a very valuable service here. And you cannot discriminate against them just because they have Catholic teachings at their center. Um, but there are still lawsuits going on all over the country against religious-based foster agencies that are doing this very hard and important work of trying to find homes for these kids. I mean, the idea that we can be picky about this is, is crazy to me. I mean, I am of the opinion that we should let a thousand flowers bloom when it comes to having foster agencies that should be able to serve any, any you know, stable, loving home that wants to foster a child. But then also states are sort of going around this, this backhanded way of trying to insert their social engineering policies um, into state law. So for instance, in California, if you want to be a foster parent, you have to promise uh, to support uh, any gender affirming treatment uh, for foster children in your home. Now, you know, leaving aside, you know, the, the outrageousness of the idea that let's say you're the biological parent, you've had a child who's removed from your home, and you're going to have the state basically say, oh, this child, you know, really wants gender transition surgery. So we're going to do that while the child is in foster care, which I just find, you know, completely outrageous from the people who think that the biological parent should have so much, so many rights. Um, but, but leaving that aside, the notion that anyone who wants to foster a child has to buy into this radical ideology is really driving out people who are, you know, 
perfectly traditional parents who just want to help these kids and don't want to, you know, offer them double mastectomies at the age of 13. Um, so, so states are really going about this kind of an, an frontal assault on kind of a, a religious liberty issues, and also this backhanded way where they say, if you want to foster with us, you have to agree to all these dangerous ideologies. Now, there is a really hot debate right now about the role of the state versus the domain of parents, but it sounds like you have some uh, mixed ideas about this because you're actually arguing that the state should have more intervention in some of these cases with foster kids. So what would be your message to parents about this, um, that issue there, balancing that? Sure. I mean, I think people need, uh, conservatives in particular, need to think about um, child welfare the same way we think about law enforcement. Um, these children are in danger and we have to figure out ways to protect them. In the same way that law enforcement in this country, the benefits of enforcing our laws tend to benefit those who are most vulnerable, who live in the poorest, most crime-ridden neighborhoods. Um, child welfare agencies, and when child welfare laws operate properly, they save the kids who are most in danger. There are almost 2,000 kids in this country who die from maltreatment every year, and we have to ask ourselves, what are we doing to protect those children? Um, which means that we need to have a very, you know, good child welfare laws. We need to have, uh, you know, people who are qualified, well-trained, and well-compensated who are doing these jobs. We need to have a good amount of oversight. Uh, a lot of family court just does not operate um, in, in ways that regular court operates, and we need to keep a closer eye on how those things work. Um, but I think that there is, unfortunately, this sense because of a few high profile cases that child welfare really just intervenes in what are basically kind of free range parent uh, uh, cases where, oh, oh, child welfare has been called because someone let their nine year old walk to the park by themselves. Um, and I, I do think people need to understand that is a misconception. Um, most of the child maltreatment deaths in this country happen to kids under three. So those are not kids who are being allowed to walk to the park by themselves. Um, and, and most of the cases where kids are really in danger are very young children. They're often being cared for by parents with severe mental illness and a lot of substance abuse. Um, that is really driving a lot of the child welfare problems in this country. And I think that as families, we need to understand that, of course, the vast majority of children in this country are going to be best cared for by their parents. Their parents are going to be the ones who have their best interests in mind. It's not going to be necessarily their teachers or their doctors or the state legislators. It's going to be their parents. But there are these children who are at great risk, and it is our duty as a society to protect those who are most vulnerable um, to these dangers. Now, we have often seen these horrific headlines about things happening to kids in foster homes. So I think that feeds into this idea that foster homes should be avoided at all cost. What's the data on how safe kids are in foster homes compared to um, biological parent homes? Sure. And kids in foster homes are much less likely to be abused or neglected than they are in, in a typical American household, frankly. Um, that's what the statistics show. But of course, when we see these headlines, we are right. Uh, I think we're rightly outraged because obviously we have put those kids in those situations. And so we as a society and our government bears a particular responsibility to those kids. And it's all the more outrageous that they have been abused in those homes. Um, but foster care generally is safer than the typical American home. That being said, I think we could do a much better job of recruiting quality foster parents for this country. And the people who are frankly doing that, to get back to one of your earlier questions, are people typically 
in faith communities. Um, what you've seen in this country is pretty much a revolution in the way uh, foster care is done um, in large evangelical churches in particular, uh, which have changed the way we recruit and train and really support foster parents. Um, about half of foster parents quit within the first year because it is very difficult work. Um, and we need to do a better job of ensuring that those foster parents uh, are trained in, in all sorts of things. I mean, uh, you know, we need to not just be telling them, you know, this is how many fire extinguishers you're required to have in your house, according to state law. We need to be saying to them, you know, you're getting kids in your home who have been severely traumatized. And these are um, evidence-based ways that we know of caring for those kids um, so that they are able to heal. That is really important information that we're not giving to a lot of foster parents. Um, I think we need more middle-class Americans, frankly, who are willing to do foster care. Um, and, and so the question is, how can we make foster care better? Because I think that um, there are a lot of parents in this country who would be willing to volunteer to do this um, if they were more exposed to what foster care involved um, and if we supported them in a better way. Yeah, I actually would count myself as one of those people who'd be interested in that. Um, in my early 20s, I was a public school teacher and one of my very favorite students went into the system at about age 14. So it's something that I've definitely had close to my heart uh, for many years now. Um, so I, I'm, I'm one of those people who would love to learn more about that if someone like you were to put out some resources. Anyway, uh, Naomi, thank you, thank you so much for coming on. Where can people find you to follow your work? Um, sure, you can find my work. I have a website, NaomiRiley.com, um, but I also, uh, you can find all my work uh, at the American Enterprise Institute, um, AEI.org. There are articles there. There's links to my book, No Way to Treat a Child. Um, and, you know, feel free to reach out and contact me if you have more questions about this. I'm happy to put you in touch with resources in your state and your, uh, you know, your county that might be able to help kids. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you. Folks, that's the end of today's Office Hours. Until next week, I'm Georgia Howe, and thanks for tuning in.